and welcome to episode 6 of Pay-Per-View, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in a true context of the weekly podcast. I'm recording this first on Friday the 2nd of March in the afternoon, and it's snowing as I look out the window as I speak. And as you will know, this country has been hit with very cold weather over the past week. And in the past couple of days, a lot of snow was Storm Emma and the beast from the east have hit this country. And that's very appropriate for the first few stories I'm going to read out today, because they're all on the subject of the snowflake mentality and the politically correct mentality. I'm going to start with a story in The Independent that is literally about snowflakes. East London head teacher bans students from touching snow. As snow continues to fall across Britain, multiple schools have implemented bans on snowball fights, but one head teacher has taken it a step further and banned students from touching snow altogether. Head teacher Jess Smith is already being mocked for his decision to ban students from touching snow over what he claims are health and safety concerns. Appearing on Good Morning Britain, Smith, from the Joe Richardson Community School in Dagenham, East London, attempted to defend his ban on snow, but the show's hosts weren't convinced. Host Susanna Reid said, Oh, come on, sir. It's just a bit of snow. Let us throw a snowball. But Smith held his position, responding, If it was that simple, I would let them throw snowballs all day long. Well, it more or less is that simple. The problem is it only takes one student, one piece of brick, one stone and a snowball in an eye with an injury, and we change our view. But according to Smith, as the school has a duty of care, the rules are, If you don't touch the snow, you're not going to throw it. This guy's a genius, isn't he? The ban on snow also keeps children from getting their clothes wet, which would make them unprepared for school, according to Smith. But what about when it rains? Are they not allowed out then? Host Piers Morgan was equally baffled by the headteacher's stance as his co-hosts and questioned whether the school would produce children unprepared for normal life. It's things like this which make children unprepared for life because it's this snowflake mentality where children and young people in general have to be guarded from not only what will offend them but also what will potentially be dangerous or apparently in any way at least this is why things like climbing trees and i read a story a couple of episodes ago about kids being banned from climbing trees and this is why more understandably after terrorist events and crime being highlighted in the media. Parents are scared to let their kids roam free outside in the way that I did and previous generations did, to just go anywhere with their mates and roam around. It was enough when I was a kid that there was a group of us. That was enough. Then we were in a group. But nowadays... The parents are scared to let them, even let their kids out. But like I said, that's a lot more understandable than stories like this. Bands on climbing trees and all these things that kids, when they're exposed to it, if things go wrong, it helps to prepare them for life. And also being offended helps to prepare them for life. And being exposed to material in universities, for example, that might trigger young people, as they call it, they call it triggering. In previous generations, you just got on with it. But now, young people were told how to be protected because it's all about turning out weak young 
people. Because if you're a tiny elite cabal that wants to have a global dictatorship, then you need to have people who are a lot less likely to challenge your authority and law enforcement and just basic rules. And that's what this is about. The story goes on. However, people are arguing for both sides of the debate on social media. Many have branded Jess Smith a snowflake for his stance, especially some other school show of pupils versus staff snowball fights. One video in particular shows young students at Alley Court Prep School frolicking in the snow and pelting their teachers with snowballs. But others understand where the headmaster is coming from and sympathise with his position. As the person in charge of 1,500 students, Smith's tough stance on snow ensures the school won't be subject to a lawsuit related to a snow-related injury. That's far more likely to be the reason for him doing it. Hopefully the snow will force the Joe Richardson Community School to close so Smith won't have to worry about the potential dangerous snowballs posed to students. As the snow continues, hundreds of schools across the country have closed. And if that is the case, then what's the point in implementing the ban anyway? This next story is uh, political correctness in a telegraph. Bristol University students seek to ban turf speakers who question transgender status of women. Bristol University Students' Union has backed proposals to ban any TERF speakers who question the transgender status of women. TERF, which stands for Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminists, is generally used as a derogatory term to describe those who believe that identifying as a woman is not the same as being born a woman. It can also be used to refer to people who are deemed to hold transphobic views. In the past, campaigners have attempted to no-platform individual speakers for holding such views, but Bristol appears to be one of the first student attempts to instigate a blanket ban. In 2015, students attempted to stop Jermaine Greer, a leading feminist, from giving a lecture at Cardiff University on the basis that she had expressed transphobic views in the past. You see, that's an important point. There is a hierarchy of political correctness and feminism is close to the top but transgender trumps it so if a feminist is speaking against transgenderism then she has to be stopped because even though she's a feminist she's not high enough in the hierarchy to be able to not be stopped from what she is saying at the bottom of the hierarchy is white people and at the top is zionism which i've talked about before anyone who criticizes the actions of the Israeli government and the slaughter and genocide of the Palestinian people by the Israeli army is jumped on from a great height because Zionism is top of the hierarchy and because Zionism is a house of Rothschild front. The Rothschilds are top of this elite I've been talking and writing about over the last over 10 years. The article goes on. Last October, the veteran lesbian activist Linda Bellos had been due to speak at Cambridge University, but a college feminist society revoked their invitation after she said she would be questioning trans politics. Any events which involve collaborating with groups that hold turf views are now borrowed from taking place on Bristol University grounds, according to the motion which was passed earlier this week. A committee will be set up in order to vet proposed speakers or organisations in order to see whether they have expressed turf views in the past. One student who attended the meeting where the motion was passed said that turfs are not a hate group, adding they just have opinions that may be different to the opinions of students. It is a difference of opinion, not a matter of bigotry or a hatred. 
There is no justification of banning a view just because you don't like it. The motion was put forward by the University's Feminist Society following an event that was held earlier this month in Bristol to discuss proposed changes to the Gender Recognition Act 2004. In July, the government announced proposals to make changing gender easier and knock away rules that currently force people to undergo medical checks. The Bristol event invited people to come and have your say on this controversial proposal, asking will this reform spell the end to single-sex spaces and the provision of single-sex services, such as those provided by rape crisis centres and women's refuges. Well, as I've said before, transgenderism, ultimately, of course, most people involved won't have any idea that this is the case, ultimately is leading to the end of sexual procreation, the end of reproduction, the end of gender and sexuality, and the end of parenting. Children will be raised by the state created laboratories. That's where we're going, and that's why there's such an effort to stop people pointing out that that's where we're going, because all of those things are fundamental to the elite's agenda. The article goes on. While the changes make it harder to gather accurate data on the pay gap between men and women, on domestic violence against women and on the health services women require. A Bristol University PhD student who specialises in violence against women and girls chaired the event. The university's feminist society said that opinions expressed at the meeting amount to hate speech and the promotion of such abuse and endangers trans women. Allowing events that put trans student safety at risk is in direct violation of the aims outlined in the Code of Conduct, the Society said in a statement on their Facebook page. They explained that they sought to implement measures to prevent similar events from taking place on university grounds or with the endorsement of members of university staff. The motion, which was voted through on Tuesday, said that opposing the proposed changes to the Act and spreading misinformation about their falsified negative impact on cis women, as is the intention of these turfs and dangerous trans women. Um, cisgender is defined as a person who was assigned a gender at sex and birth that they feel comfortable with and therefore they match their identity with the sex that they were given. So, in other words, they're straight because the gender you, you're born, your parents find out before you're born in the hospital what gender you are, then you're born and, and they see that the judgment was correct very quickly, obviously, that you are a boy or a girl. And cisgender women are those who say, yeah, I am a woman. So we've already got a word for that. Heterosexual, or otherwise known as straight. We don't need another name for it. The article goes on. A Bristol University PhD student who specialises in violence against women and girls chaired the event. The university's feminist society said that opinions expressed at the meeting amount to hate speech and the promotion of such views and dangerous trans women. Allowing events that puts trans student safety at risk is in direct violation of the aims outlined in the Code of Conduct, the society said in a statement on their Facebook page. A spokesman for Bristol University Students' Union said the motion to prevent future trans-exclusionary radical feminist turf groups from Holding events at university was debated and passed by students through secret ballot at our annual members' meeting. The spokesman said that further vote will need to take place before the motion becomes official students' union policy. Professor Nishan Kanagaraja, Bristol University's Pro Vice Chancellor of Research and Enterprise, 
published a blog post about the event and the backlash it received from the student community. The university has been made aware of the controversy surrounding a recent meeting in Bristol organised by the group known as A Woman's Place and chaired by one of our students, he said. This presents an opportune time to affirm our commitment to freedom of speech and to the rights of all of our students and staff to discuss difficult and sensitive topics. The next story is about political correctness again. This is in The Guardian. Transgender wrestler Matt Beggs wins Texas Girls title again. For the second year in a row, a transgender wrestler has won the Texas Girls Class 6A 110 pounds division. Mac Beggs, an 18-year-old senior from Newless Trinity High School near Dallas, entered the tournament in Cyprus outside of Houston with an undefeated record. He beat Chelsea Sanchez, who he beat for the title in 2017, in the final match on Saturday. Video posted online showed a mix of cheers and boos from the crowd following Beggs' win. Beggs is in the process of transitioning from female to male and taking a low dose of testosterone. It was his steroid therapy treatments while wrestling girls that stirred a fierce debate about competitive fairness and transgender rights last season. PC hierarchy again. His march to a state championship was dogged by a last-minute lawsuit that tried to stop him. Beggs asked to wrestle in the boys' division, but the rules for Texas public high schools require athletes to compete under the gender on their birth certificate. He entered this year's state tournament with a 32-0 record, beating three female wrestlers on his way to the championship. He has so much respect for all the girls he wrestles, said Beggs' mother, Angela McNew. People think Mac has been beating up on girls. The girls he wrestles with, they are tough. It has more to do with skill and discipline than strength. McNew would not make Beggs available for interviews. The solitude allowed him to concentrate on the task ahead and perhaps shield him from attacks on social media and occasional insults from the stands or even other wrestling match during meets. Beggs' road to the championship last season included two forfeits in a regional tournament by wrestlers who feared injury. Beggs faced only one forfeit this season. The opposing coaching teammates had insisted the girl wrestle Beggs, but she refused, McNew said. The birth certificate rule was approved in 2016 by the University Interscholastic League, the governing body for Texas high school sports. It was done to help schools determine competition, said Jamie Harrison, UIL Deputy Director. Last year, Beggs told ESPN, Texas policymakers should change the laws and then watch me wrestle the boys because I'm a guy, it just makes more sense. Well, it's no surprise that this guy has won so many matches because he's genetically, biologically a male and males are stronger than females. It's a physical fact. It's not discrimination, it's a physical fact. But it's the transgender part of the PC hierarchy again. Continuing the theme of Political correctness is in the Daily Mail. Guilty of PC waffle, top judge tells colleagues not to say postman, lady or immigrant in court because it might upset defendants and witnesses. Judges have been told what they can and cannot say in an effort to make all those who come before their courts feel they have been treated fairly. They have been banned from using phrases and words including ethnic minority, Afro-Caribbean and transsexual, while a postman should become a postal operative. Another way, how about person chooses not to be offended, then there's no need to tell judges what they can and cannot say because the person's not going to be offended anyway. The new guidance for judges and magistrates says real equality means favouring women and minorities to make up for the disadvantages they suffer. No, it doesn't at all. Real equality means treating everybody equally and giving everybody the same opportunity. That's what equality is. How can you have equality if you're favouring people from certain groups? Part of this equality drive includes a fresh list of terms and expressions that judges should no longer use. 
the extensive instructions on language in court insists that using acceptable terminology avoids offending the relevant party or witness and gives confidence that they will receive a fair hearing. The rules also recommend that courts should be slow to send women to prison because jail terms are more damaging to them than men. Can you imagine the implications for that? Transgender criminals, the guidance adds, are highly apprehensive about prison. <laughs> so are a lot of other people. Courts should be taken into private session or publicity about a trial restricted if the evidence is likely to expose the fact that someone has changed sex. The guidance, the 422-page Equal Treatment Bench Book, is published by the Judicial College, the body in charge of training judges, which is led by an appeal judge, Dame Anne Rafferty. How can it be equality if you're favouring certain people over not going to prison over everybody else? It is the latest update to equality rules that were first produced under Tony Blair's... Oh, well, no surprise there. Lord Chancellor Lord Irvine in 1999 and ran into controversy after recommending that the court should show leniency to Rastafarians because they regard smoking cannabis as a religious right. True equal treatment may not always mean treating everyone in the same way. The new version says fair treatment, judges are told, means that steps can be taken where appropriate to redress any inequality arising from difference or disadvantage. But that shouldn't be used to give preference to certain groups over others, that's the point. The story goes on. The bench book adds women remain disadvantaged in many public and private areas of their lives. The previous life experiences of women offenders, their reasons for offending, their offending patterns, the impact of custodial sentences on themselves and their defendants, and the long-term effects of prison sentences all tend to differ between men and women. The impact of imprisonment on women, more than half of whom have themselves been victims of serious crime, is especially damaging and their outcomes are worse than men's. If a prison sentence for a woman is really necessary, judges should consider suspending it, the guidance says. No, I didn't misread that. It does really say if a prison sentence for a woman is really necessary, judges should consider suspending it. It quoted a former liberal US Supreme Court judge, Justice Blackman, on why people should be treated differently on race grounds. In order to get beyond racism, we must first take account of race. There is no other way. And in order to treat some persons equally, we must treat them differently. Again, no mistake there. I did read that out as printed. And in order to treat some persons equally, we must treat them differently. How can that policy be seen as anything other than discrimination? A section on transgender people said the term transsexual should be dropped because some people find it stigmatising. And... That's their own problem. Courts should not reveal that someone was born in a different sex to that in which they appear unless it was necessary. In such circumstances, the information the guidance says should be kept from the public along with some or all details about the case, a rule that puts transgender sensitivities above the need for open justice. Extraordinary, but not surprising because this is where it's going. There is a political correctness hierarchy. The majority can never be discriminated against. The less number of people there are, the more protection they get with political correctness. This is why transgender and Zionism are at the top, as well as the fact that Zionism is an elite secret society fundamentally connected to the House of Rothschild, who are at the top of the elite bloodline network I've been talking and writing about for 10 years now. This elite network that controls business, banking, media, pharmaceutical cartel, the meat, the biotech cartel, the oil cartel, etc. And this has become known in the mainstream media in recent years as the 1%, actually less than 1%, or even more recently, the deep state. Although the deep state doesn't really tell the whole story.
Judicial College Chief Lady Justice Rafferty said in a forward to the book, the profound desire of the team responsible for this revision is that all those in and using the court leave it conscious of having appeared before a fair-minded tribunal. The guidance says women criminals often have troubled lives. Women's offending can be linked to underlying mental health needs, drug and alcohol problems, coercive relationships, financial difficulties and debt. It says, well, same goes for some men as well. It also warns women are particularly vulnerable to online harassment, exploitation, manipulation and intimidation. Judges need to appreciate the central role that social media plays in the lives of many women with its own set of norms and values, which may be unfamiliar. But there's a lot of men that are subject to online harassment, exploitation, manipulation, and intimidation as well. The guidance also told judges that they might take account in family cases of decisions made by Islamic Sharia tribunals. However, a report for the Home Office earlier this year found that women frequently suffer blatant discrimination in Sharia divorce cases. This is what political correctness is about. It's not just about what you can say and what you can't say. It's also about the way certain groups are treated and given preference over others. And while we're talking about justice and political correctness, here's another story on that theme connected to snowflakes in terms of the political correctness side of snowflakes couple of stories on the grooming gangs in places like Rotherham, but not only Rotherham. This is in the Daily Mail. Rotherham child abuse scandal is so big that police need another 100 officers to work on investigation, which has already cost £10 million. The biggest investigation into child sexual exploitation needs 100 more officers to tackle the unprecedented scale of abuse in Rotherham. More than 1,500 potential victims and 110 suspects have been identified by the National Crime Agency and figures are expected to rise further. Paul Williamson, the senior investigating officer on Operation Stonewood, told the Guardian his team so far had only been able to contact 17% of the 1,510 possible victims due to a shortage of specially trained detectives. Mr Williamson also said the investigation needed to be as big as Operation Resolve, the investigation into the Hillsborough disaster, as it was comparable in terms of complexity and scale. It's a really specialist area, engaging and interviewing vulnerable victims, he said. A lot of our victims were children when they were abused, but they're now adults and have associated problems as a result of that abuse, including suicidal tendencies, mental health issues, drug and alcohol addiction. It's really complex. The progress will necessarily be influenced by the number of officers we've got on the team, and we can see that. He added he was conscious of demands that are placed across law enforcement in the UK, but that he needed 200 to 250 officers to complete the task. He currently has 144 officers on Operation Stovewood. The NCA is conducting a huge investigation into the South Yorkshire town following the revelations in the 2014 J report that children were groomed and abused there. Professor Alexis J's report sparked national soul searching when it revealed that the large-scale exploitation undertaken by gangs and men had been effectively ignored by police and other agencies for more than a decade. 80% of the suspects are said to be Pakistani, 90% of the victims are white girls. Operation Stovewood was launched after it was called in by South Yorkshire Police three years ago and is now the biggest investigation in CSE in the UK. It is 85% funded by the Home Office and 15% by South Yorkshire Police and has cost more than £10 million so far. More than 34 investigations have come out of Stovewood and has led to four individuals being convicted, 38 arrested, 18 charged and two cautioned. Another story about grooming gangs. This was in the Scottish Daily Mail on the 24th of February. So not this week, but it's relevant. Grooming is still rife throughout UK. 
Grooming gangs are still sexually abusing girls and young women across the country despite repeated warnings and prosecutions, a shocking report revealed yesterday. Efforts to stop the exploitation have been hampered by the authorities' failure to understand why abusers target vulnerable white girls, the investigation found. Because they're vulnerable, they've answered their own question. The author of a report into the latest abuse scandal yesterday urged the UK government to order a national study into the cultural influences on the offenders, predominantly from an Asian-British background. The inquiry into gangs who groomed 700 girls and women in the northeast of England came four years after more than a thousand victims were found to have been abused in Rotherham, South Yorkshire, the new report revealed. The authorities effectively gave grooming gangs the green light to sexually abuse by failing to prosecute, instead locking up victims. Locking up victims is what happens with the paedophilia that is now epidemic, not least when the victims are trying to expose people in the establishment that are responsible for it. One abuser, an illegal immigrant, granted indefinite leave to remain, denounced British girls' lack of morals and praised the availability of sex and drugs. The abuse of vulnerable victims is still taking place across the country and all children of vulnerable adults are at risk. The serious case review by Barrister David Spicer examined the actions of agencies involved in Operation Sanctuary, which was launched by Northumbria Police. The report identifies failures by police and social services who repeatedly let down victims by not dealing with the abusers until the change of approach in 2014, when Operation Sanctuary began. It ultimately resulted in 112 offenders being jailed for a total of almost 500 years. Among them was an 18-strong grooming gang in Newcastle whose members were found guilty of rape, sexual assault, trafficking and inciting prostitution. Police believe the case involved over 100 victims. Mr Spicer said that since the Rotherham abuse scandal was exposed in 2011, there had been a change of attitude by agencies and an injection of resources. But he concluded that more needs to be done to defeat the criminals. He noted... Despite comprehensive action to disrupt and prosecute perpetrators and the publicity that this has attracted, sexual exploitation continues. Perpetrators show remarkable persistence in targeting and grooming victims, undeterred by involvement of the police and other agencies. The government promised to look carefully at Mr Spicer's 33 recommendations. He said more powers were also needed to protect adults who were being targeted, groomed and exploited. His report also highlighted that the men responsible for this particular model of abuse were from a predominantly Asian-British minority background. Significantly, their beliefs are not known. Mr Spicer said professionals interviewed for his inquiry emphasised the lack of information about the profile and motivation for abusing that continued to hamper understanding how to stop it. He said national research needs to be conducted so guidance can be published for professionals on the most effective way of preventing exploitation. The report revealed how the authorities previously ignored the gangs of men from Bangladeshi, Indian, Iranian, Iraqi, Kurdish, Turkish, Albanian and Eastern European backgrounds operating in the Newcastle area. In some cases, the victims themselves were placed in secure accommodation. Deterrent punishments were considered against them for being drunk and disorderly or making false allegations when they changed their accounts. Meanwhile, the abusers who raped young girls and plied them with drugs and alcohol in return for sex were not punished or disrupted, the report stated. Vida Morris, chairman of the Newcastle Safeguarding Adults Board, apologised to the women who fell into the gang's clutches, saying we're profoundly sorry for the trauma they have suffered. This is the political correctness hierarchy again. These progressives and political correctness people, what they need to realise is that they're responsible for the lack of response to this abuse. Authorities haven't responded in the way they should because they're afraid of being seen as racist. The PC progressive mind 
and the PC progressive adherents talking their fake self-purity about equality and diversity while trying to destroy freedom of speech and branding people as discriminatory and thus they cause a lack of response in cases like these. This is the PC hierarchy. These abusers, predominantly from an Asian British background, because they are from a predominantly Asian British background, they get more protection in the PC hierarchy than white girls. This is where you get confusion. But there's a simple solution. Stop seeing people in terms of a group and see them as individuals. The PC people, the progressives, the social justice warriors, they judge everybody as a group. And that's where the PC hierarchy comes from. How can you have a hierarchy when you judge everybody as individuals? You can't. You can when you see everybody as a group. You lump them in as a group and they are under that label. That's their category. But in every type of group, from every race, from every creed, from every colour, from every background, you'll have nice people, you'll have okay people, yeah, they're all right, and you'll have seriously horrible, mean, and in this case, people who will abuse others. So the answer is to treat people in situations on their merit rather than seeing everything as a group. And the Pakistani people and those from a predominantly Asian, British background, they need to ask themselves in the areas where this is happening if they're content to let this go on in their name. But to point this all out, however, is seen as racist. Well, fuck it. It needs saying, and we're at a point now where we say what we need to say, or there's no freedom left. That's the choice, because, as I've said before, how can you defend any other freedom if you don't have the freedom of speech? and the freedom to point out what needs pointing out. Talked about young people already today in this episode, and this next story is about young people. The changing subject this time is about education, which I've talked about before on pay-per-view. This is in The Independent. The government's planned test for four-year-olds will be damaging, education experts warn. The government's plans for a new test for four-year-olds will be damaging to young children. Parents, teachers and psychotherapists warned. A coalition of campaigners has called on the Department for Education to abandon its proposal to spend almost £10 million on a new baseline assessment for children at the start of reception, which is the first year of primary school. The new report, launched in Parliament yesterday, warns that enormous damage can be done to children when adults believe that children's ability is fixed and can be defined at a young age. It adds that children will be pushed into the world of high-stakes assessment under the government's plans, which it says is at odds with young children's learning and development. The More Than a Score Coalition, which represents 18 education and parents organisations, unveiled the dossier at a meeting hosted by Shadow Early Years Minister Tracy Brabin. The Early Years experts argue that the assessment due to be introduced in 2020 will add another stressor to the existing load and will limit playful, creative and intellectual experiences. This is a point. Rarely does anyone ever ask or debate what kids are taught in school. They'll talk about how they're taught, learning methods, funding for new ways to teach, but they rarely talk, or I ever rarely hear it anyway, about what the kids are taught, which is, as I've said before, indoctrination and left brain information. And I've talked before about the difference between left and right brain. The earlier you start kids on left brain information, the earlier you're limiting the influence of the right brain, which is what this is about. The left brain is about structure, its own version of logic. It's about rational, 
left brain is analytical. It's about seeing limitations, seeing everything as a part. Whereas the right brain is about seeing ways around a problem. It sees connections. It's creative. It's intuitive. It's imaginative. And the traits of the right brain are what the elite want to stamp out from the earliest possible age in favour of the left brain. Now, we should be whole brain. There's a bridge between the two at the back of the brain called the corpus callosum, which is supposed to pass information between the two. But what the elite want through education is to have as much left brain influence on kids as they can achieve. Because if you're locked in the left brain, then you're never going to see the true nature of self and the world that you're living in which is perfect for the elite. The article goes on. The test is proposed for the first few weeks of reception and should be abandoned and replaced with teacher assessments throughout the year, campaigners argue. Alison Roy, a lead child psychotherapist, told The Independent, if children are being tested before they establish secure relationship with their teachers, then it will not be an effective assessment of their capacity to learn or their academic ability. I think it is a huge risk as it could make children think school is a hostile place and a judgmental place, rather than a place where they can explore and learn about themselves and their world. When you're born, you tend to accept things as they are. This is how things are. This is normal. And this is one reason why we've got cameras in schools, and as the state as a whole, it's taken over from parents increasingly. And we've got kids having to thumb scan for taking out library books. It's getting kids used to the idea that this is how things are, surveillance and having this state and school make decisions that parents should make is the norm. And there's a great photo you can find if you do an image search and type in words to the effect of what school teaches children, what the kids learn from school. And this is what it says. One, truth comes from authority. There's no need to listen to anybody else. There's no need to look on the internet unless it's from an official source. Just take what school says and take what official sources like the mainstream media say and government statements say, because they're official, so it must be true, because they're authority. They've got the authority on truth. Oh, this guy's telling me he's done a lot of research on this subject, and it's very different to what I'm told, but how can he know he's just a guy? He doesn't don't need to listen to him. I just watch the news or just take what my teacher tells me at school or teacher at university. Or college. That's all I need. Two, intelligence is the ability to remember and repeat. This is what we call cleverness. If you can take what authority tells you and repeat it out on an exam paper, then you are perceived to be clever, but it's just memory. Three, accurate memory and repetition are rewarded. Four, non-compliance is punished. Do what we say or else. And this ties into what I said just now about kids growing up with surveillance and the schools taken over from parents and in the wider scheme of things, the state's taken over from parents. Five, the last one, conform intellectually and socially. That's the main thing that kids take away from school. Noam Chomsky has another great quote, time in relation to education, and he says, the school system is designed to teach obedience and conformity and prevent the child's natural capacities from developing. That's exactly the way it is. You see, Einstein has another great quote as well, which leads on to another point, which is, 
everybody is a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will spend its whole life believing it is stupid. See, education is a one-size-fits-all if you are not clever by the criteria of the state-imposed curriculum, then you're not clever in the eyes of the education system. But the point that Einstein was making with that quote is that everybody has their own unique abilities and gifts, but they're never revealed under the education system because it's not about looking at the characteristics of children, as Noam Chomsky says in his quote, it's about the unique characteristics of children. It's about conformity, conformity to a state-imposed curriculum view of the world and self. But this is why so many people flourish after leaving school, because they have the opportunity and the time then to work on expressing their own abilities, whatever those abilities are, that are not revealed under the education system. And if you're an elite, you don't want people who can see through what you're doing. So you have to make sure they see themselves in the world in the way that suits you, because they're not enough of you to physically control populations. So you have to do it through manipulating their perception. The article goes on. On the proposed baseline assessment confirmed by the government in September last year, Miss Roy added, I think it is putting undue stress on little children. It is not necessary to test them at that age. I think we have a responsibility to settle them. They are so emotionally fragile at that age. That's another reason why it's happening, because the earlier you can bring children into line, the more likely they are to stay in line throughout their life. The article goes on. They also pick up on the stress of adults, and if we have teachers under pressure to meet targets, then children are likely to pick up on the teacher's reaction to that pressure, as well as potentially the emotional stress of their teachers. Madeline Holt from the Parents' Organisation Rescue Our Schools said parents are becoming far more aware that their children are being ever-tested. The new test would steer the teaching of four-year-olds towards an excessive focus on numeracy and literacy. Labour MP Tracy Brabin said, I believe children learn through play and creativity, not just through examinations. That's why it's great more than a score is leading on this important work. This is why, again and again, creative subjects are cut back in favour of more left-brain academic-type subjects. The article goes on. A Department for Education spokesperson said standards are rising in our schools with 1.9 million more pupils in good or outstanding schools than compared to 2010. Well, often what are called good or outstanding schools are schools that are good at programming, good at the indoctrination. Now, I'm not saying, of course, that the teachers or anybody involved with the school will know that. I'm not saying that. But the end result is the same. The baseline assessment will help establish the progress made by pupils from reception to the end of key stage two and ensure schools are accountable for pupils' progress as well as their attainment. Schools will be provided with the required materials and guidance to administer the assessment, which will be carried out in normal teaching time by a teacher or training assistant, the Department for Education spokesperson said. It's all about increasing the programming of young people and getting them to see themselves in the world and world events in ways that suit authority and the elite. Another story here about education. This is actually an article written by Professor Frank Faridi, Emeritus Professor of Sociology at the University of Kent. 
This was published on the 22nd of February, but it's relevant to the story I've just read. But the article is about young people and education and more so university age young people. And he's pointing out the way that they're taught and what they're taught. And he says here, teaching dates means expecting pupils to commit facts to memory, learning by heart. And that is at odds with a modern trend for what you might call learning by emotion. Today's educators sneer at rote-based lessons. They think bare facts have no value. They want students to emotionally identify with the past instead. So they might be invited to write about how it felt to be caught up in a certain historic event, to be a suffragette who was force-fed in prison or a conscientious objector in 1915, rather than what actually happened and why. The why would only be what the education system says it is. But I take Professor Farida's point there. Just as disturbing is the fact that when children are taught about World War One, it will almost certainly be from the viewpoint that this was a terrible period in our country's history. The woe and horror, as Iraq war veteran Colonel Tim Collins said this week, and not as a great military victory for Britain and her allies. Well, I'd have my own view on that, but again, I take his point. In this context, patriotism is despised, the courage of our troops decried as naivety, and the millions who sacrificed their lives are pitied, not admired. The only conclusion to be drawn from that version of history is that there's no point in fighting for anything worthwhile. It's a destructive, cynical attitude. A century ago, our society held values dear, such as heroism, duty, responsibility and courage. But these are not ideals promoted today. They have been replaced by the thinking of trendy educationalists who espouse therapeutic values, such as self-esteem, diversity and the importance of feeling good about yourself. And equality as well, he could have included in that. It's small wonder that so many millennials don't know who Churchill was. Their outlook on life, actually very inward-looking, is so utterly different to that of a hundred years ago that they have no hope of understanding what drove him first as a young soldier and then as wartime leader. Heroism, a quality that inspired men to sacrifice their lives for their comrades, and women to endure appalling ordeals to win the vote, is regarded now by many under-30s as boneheaded, almost comical posturing. The notion of standing and fighting for a belief is incomprehensible, unless, of course, you can take a selfie while doing it and look good on social media. As amusing as their ignorance is on one level, it should worry us. This isn't just the evaporation of history, but the loss of our highest values, which are becoming detached from everyday life. If we ignore the lessons of history, if it is no longer a source of wisdom for today, then we are abandoning our past. And he could have said, as the famous quote goes, paraphrasing, but the famous quote goes, if you don't learn from history, then you're condemned to repeat it. And this is the mindset of the politically correct crown and the progressives and social justice warriors, especially the social justice warriors. Just go on YouTube and type that in and you'll see what I mean. In their fake self-purity and in their uninformed view they can't debate because they lose easily, quite comprehensively. And they don't know the facts because, as Professor Faridi says, they're learning by emotion. So what they do, as the saying goes, throw mud and run. They aim a lot of attacks at people, even though they claim to be anti-hate. And they seek to ban or de-platform people because that's their only option. Without facts and being informed, you've only got one option, and that's to ban people challenging your view from speaking, and or go off into a frenzy, especially like the social justice warriors do. Now, there's a poignant realisation here, 
these people are going to be in the future, at least on one level, anyway, running our world. Change of subject again, but still focusing on young people. Death by Amazon. Toys R Us plunges into administration with £15 million debts, putting 3,000 jobs at risk after 70-year-old high street chain failed to compete with online giants. Toys R Us has plunged into administration, putting 3,000 jobs at risk after the retailer failed to pay £15 million VAT bill. The toy seller was scrambling to find a buyer before hitting the payment deadline last night on a hefty bill, last night being the 27th of February, but failed with experts citing its inability to compete with Amazon and major supermarkets as the reason for its downfall. Administrator Moorfield has been appointed to conduct what it called an orderly wind-down of the company's store portfolio, although the firm insisted it is still seeking a buyer. Toys R Us is one of three major companies in trouble today. Electronics firm Maplin also collapsed into administration, putting another 2,500 jobs at risk. Insolvency specialist Shakespeare Martino, Michael Mulligan, said Toys R Us ultimately failed to adapt to the change in British shopping habits and did not properly invest in its business in order to compete with Amazon and the major supermarkets. It's not an accident Toys R Us didn't keep up with Amazon. It was always the plan Amazon would reach the near monopoly that it has now, en route to a monopoly. I talked a couple of episodes ago about this Hunger Games society that we're now seeing. And one of the traits of that Hunger Games society is that giant corporations will run everything. No business of any size, just giant corporations. And the power these corporations would have because of trade deals like TTIP, where corporations can take governments to court to overturn laws perceived to affect profits. That's what I mean by giant corporations. They want an end to any competition. So it's not so much that Toys R Us ultimately failed to adapt to the change in British shopping habits and did not properly invest in its business in order to compete with Amazon. It's the fact that it was always the plan that Amazon would be what it is now, and we've seen nothing yet as far as that goes. Because the idea is that Amazon has a monopoly, as with all these other giant corporations. And there's another connection here as well, talking about the Hunger Games Society. The plan is, as I've said before, for basically a three-tier society, where you have the elite in mega mega luxury even more than they are now as i've said before people who look at the global financial crash of 2008 that's nothing compared to where this is going you look at places like cyprus where they have the bail-in where money's taken from people's bank accounts directly to bail out the banks even though it was the fault of the banking system rather than the people but where this is going as i've said before is that if you're not this elite they want your money as well and in that society, if you want to work, then you have to work for a corporation because there will be nothing else other than giant corporation. And you look at the way that Amazon treats its workers, and it won't be the only giant corporation that treats its employees like that. This is where it's all going. These are the connections. This is the context that you don't get in the mainstream media. The article goes on. This is not the first high-profile retail insolvency of the year, and we expect more, particularly in vulnerable sectors such as retail, construction, and the restaurant trade. Recent insolvency statistics demonstrate that this is a growing trend, and failing to take notice and adapt accordingly to changing consumer behaviour could be deadly for UK retailers. 
Troy's Arbors Administrator Simon Thomas at Partner at Moorfield said we will be conducting an orderly wind down in the store portfolio over the coming weeks. All stores remain open until further notice and stock will be subject to clearance and special promotions. We're encouraging customers to redeem their gift cards and vouchers as soon as possible. We will make every effort to secure a buyer for all or part of the business. All stores will continue trading until further notice and much of the stock will be subject to clearance discounts and other special promotions. More fields confirmed. Whilst this process is likely to affect many Toys R Us staff, whether some or all of the stores will close remains to be decided. We have informed employees about the process this morning and will continue to keep them updated on developments. We are grateful for the commitment and the hard work of employees as the business continues to trade, Mr Thomas added. Gift cards and vouchers will be honoured while the stores continue to trade, but customers are being encouraged to redeem vouchers as soon as possible as stores may be subject to closure without notice. No further gift cards will be sold from Wednesday. Toys R Us, which employs around 3,000 staff in the UK, is understood to have struggled with cash flow pressures after sales were squeezed by worse than expected trading in the crucial Christmas period. This is another point. As the monopoly of these corporations continues to grow en route to a full monopoly, then, of course, many people are going to be out of a job. And that's, again, moving towards creating this three-tier society. The article goes on. It comes after the beleaguered firm announced a company voluntary arrangement which allows debt to be paid back over a fixed period at the end of last year. This move was intended to shore up the company's financial position by allowing it to shut loss-making stores and secure substantial discounts on rental costs. The restructuring plan won the approval of 98% of Toys R Us creditors in December and had the backing of the Pension Protection Fund. The move would see at least 26 loss-making UK stores shut in spite of the loss of up to 800 jobs. The PPF had earlier refused to back the retailer's plans, but concessions from the company, including an offer to reduce its deficit recovery plan to 10 years from 15 years, meant the deal finally received its blessing. In total, Toys R Us has agreed to pay £9.8 million into the pension plan, made up of £3.8 million in 2018 and £6 million over 2019 and 2020. Electronics company Maplin has become the second retailer on the same day to collapse into administration, putting another 2,500 jobs at risk. The group, owned by private equity firm Rutland Partners, called in PwC on Wednesday after attempts to rescue the chain failed. Maplin has 217 stores in the UK and PwC is still attempting to find a buyer for the group. Graham Harris, the company's chief executive, said, I can confirm this morning that it has not been possible to secure a solvent sale with the business and as a result, we now have no alternative but to enter into an administration process. During this process, Maplin will continue to trade and remain open for business. Hannah Mondrell, editor-in-chief of Money.co.uk, commented, Sadly, high street retailers are having a hard time at the moment and Maplin is the latest victim. Stores are struggling to compete with prices online and our shopping habits have changed dramatically. It's undoubtedly distressing news for employees of Maplin. Check what redundancy rights you have and dig out any income or mortgage protection policies you hold just in case. Maplin have decided to continue trading for the moment. However, if the administrator decides to suspend gift vouchers and refunds, you could be in for a lengthy battle to get your money back if you paid via cash. Alex Neal, which managing director of home products and services, said, if you're planning to shop in Toys R Us or Maplin and intend to buy something worth more than £100, make sure you use a credit card as you'll be able to make a claim against your credit card company under Section 75 of the Consumer Credit Act if anything goes wrong. Meanwhile, 100 Prezo-owned outlets are due to close, including the complete shutdown of its Tex-Mex chain, Chimichanga. Sources told Sky News that the CVA process will be unveiled in the next few days and will involve negotiations with landlords to secure rent reductions at many of Prezzo's remaining restaurants. This Hunger Games Society is happening. It's not a theory. 
Hundreds of jobs are at risk at the firm with a 4,000 strong workforce. Alex Partners, the advisory firm, is overseeing the CVA. And there's a few other sections here. What do customers need to know about the collapse of Toys R Us? Will Toys R Us stores be accepting returns? Toys R Us stores will remain open during the administration process, but the retailer cannot refund any returns. However, it can provide an exchange as long as the customers have a valid proof of purchase, such as a receipt, and the product is not open and in a resellable condition. Will customers receive online orders made before the administration? All click and collect orders made will be honoured as long as stock is available. Customers have been advised to pick up their goods as soon as possible. Can customers continue to buy products online? Online trading at Toys R Us stopped at 10am on Wednesday, meaning no new online or click and collect orders can be made. However, the retailer will be making discounts to products in store which customers can buy. What should customers do if they have a take time to pay agreement with Toys R Us? If they have settled their agreement but not picked up their products, then shoppers should visit a store as soon as possible. Customers who have not settled their agreement and picked up their products need to visit their nearest store by Sunday and March the 11th to pay the balance or to buy goods in store that exceed the value of the deposit. No cash refunds will be made for deposits paid before the administration. What will happen to customer loyalty cards and vouchers? Administrators Moorfield said no new loyalty cards will be issued and discount coupons cannot be exchanged for loyalty points because of the substantial discounting in stores. All gift cards will be honored during the administration process and shoppers should use them as soon as possible. The balance on gift cards cannot be refunded. How will customers know when the local store is closing? Moorfield said it is too early to say the administrators will manage the store trading strategy while also evaluating the options for the company's future and determining how to obtain the best possible outcome. It remains to be decided if some or all of the stores will be closed. What Toys R Us collapse means for members of the firm's pension schemes? When was Toys R Us founded and how did it collapse? In 1948, war veteran Charles Lazarus opened his first baby furniture store, Children's Bargain Town in Washington, D.C. Two years later, Lazarus began to sell toys and he soon realised that unlike furniture, toys fell out of fashion or broke, prompting parents to return to the store to buy more. In June 1957, he restructured his business and opened his first store solely dedicated to toys, creating the Toys R Us brand. By the early 1980s, Toys R Us looked to diversify and the company branches out into children's clothing when it opened Kids R Us stores in Paramus, New Jersey and Brooklyn, New York. The firm also went international when it opened outlets in Canada and Singapore. The chain came to the UK in 1985 and now boasts 105 outlets across England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. In 1998, it realised the potential of the internet and allowed people to buy items online from ToysRUs.com. Toys R Us's UK arm was plunged into crisis last year after its American parent company declared bankruptcy in the US and Canada. Bankruptcy proceedings in the US work differently to the UK with companies able to seek court backing for a plan to rescue their business if they have the support of lenders. At first, Toys R Us said stores in Britain would not be affected, but soon after its bosses here announced they would axe hundreds of jobs and a quarter of the chain's 105 stores in a bid to balance the books. It's bid to push the changes through under a so-called company voluntary agreement hit stumbling block, however, because of a row over a £30 million black hole in its pension scheme. Toys R Us needed approval from the Pension Protection Fund, which refused to give approval unless the firm injected nearly £10 million into its retirement pot. After a tense showdown, bosses eventually agreed to pay £3.8 million this year and another £6 million over 2019 and 2020. That deal was supposed to give the company breathing space, but it plunged into administration today. The news comes as the US arm of the toy giant plans to close a further 200 stores, putting thousands of jobs at risk as it attempts to avoid a total collapse of the business. Toys R Us closed 182 stores in the US last year, hitting 4,500 employees. 
The decision to close another 200 stores would take the total to almost 400, roughly half of its estate in the US. It comes after the retailers were disappointing sales over the crucial Christmas period as demand for online shopping continues to hammer the high street in the UK and in the US. I'm going to change the focus now from young people to old people. This time, the care of the elderly, care homes. This is in the Telegraph. Care home residents are unwittingly signing contracts which could see them kicked out within 24 hours, which is found. The watchdog warned that vulnerable older people and their families can be subjected to unfair terms because they don't understand what they are signing. The government said it was considering changing the law to protect people from unscrupulous providers, which contacted 50 care homes posing as a family member looking for care for an elderly relative. Just four homes agreed to send a sample contract, three of which contained clauses which could be unfair to residents, including the right to end a contract within 24 hours notice for detrimental behaviour. Another contract said the home could charge a resident up to a month's fees following their death, a practice which the Competition and Markets Authority has previously said is illegal. In a separate poll of 500 people who had recently signed care home contracts, only half said the provider checked that they understood the document they signed, and a third of those who said no checks were carried out said they did not understand what they had signed up to. Alex Heyman, which managing director of public markets, said it's unacceptable that care homes are making it difficult for people to get hold of contracts in the terms and conditions they are signing up to when making such an important life decision. Far too many care home residents are hit with unexpected fees or contract terms which can have far-reaching and devastating consequences for vulnerable people and their families at an already distressing time. Andrew Bowden, Senior Policy Officer at Alzheimer's Society, called the findings absolutely appalling. He added, the findings from this investigation are deeply saddening and shameful, but unfortunately unsurprising. Around two-thirds, 70%, of people living in care homes are affected by dementia. And all too often, families of people with dementia have called us at their wit's end as their loved one suffers at the hands of bad contract clauses. Some have told us harrowing stories of people with advanced dementia evicted at a month's notice. Minister of State for Care Caroline Dynage said, We know it can be distressing for care home residents to face upheaval. That's why we expect people receiving care to have easy access to information and certainty about their circumstances. We're taking action to tackle poor consumer practices. On Monday, we will publish our response to the recent Competition and Markets Authority report where we will outline stronger consumer protections. If improvements aren't seen, we will look to change the law to protect care home residents from unscrupulous practices. A CMA spokesperson said it is extremely important that care home residents and their families can be confident they will be fairly treated, especially during the difficult period after a family member has died. That is why we are currently investigating a number of care home providers to determine if they are complying with consumer law and have recently consulted on new advice on the charging of fees after a resident's death. This is this connects into the depopulation agenda. They want to get rid of elderly people. They want to get rid of what? Henry Kissinger, a massive insider for this elite, who has served the elite for decades. He's at the level of George Soros in that he's still a gopher, but he will have a certain level of knowledge about the agenda. It's about getting rid of what Henry Kissinger calls useless eaters. It's rich coming from him. Henry Kissinger is 94 now, and, you know, these elites live as long as they do, obviously, because they get different health care and treatment to the rest of the population. And the fact that alternative methods of healing are suppressed and given limited permission in terms of promotion, as I've said before and talked about in pay-per-view before. And at the same time as that's happening, we have pharmaceutical drugs with so-called side effects, which are actually effects, widely available. And we have treatments like cancer treatments, 
with chemotherapy, which kills cells, not just cancer cells, but kills cells, and radiotherapy, which is radiation, which causes cancer. We have vaccines, which have been proven to be, in some cases, deadly, in other cases, causing more problems for people. And this is what we call medical treatment. And they want to get rid of elderly people. And when people get too old to serve the system in the agenda, then the state wants rid of them because they're not useful anymore. Change of subject now. This is in the independent. NHS GP practices offered cash rewards to not send patients to hospital. Doctor surgeries are being offered rewards for not sending patients to hospital in a move condemned as a dereliction of duty by experts. An investigation into referral incentive schemes being run by NHS clinical commissioning groups across England found some regions offering GPs as much as 50% of any savings they can make. These profit share arrangements mean practices stand to benefit financially by not sending patients for treatment or to see a specialist. Hospitals are paid for operations and other activities so by sending patients to cheaper services or by keeping them out of hospital altogether, practices can increase the size of savings. Other CCG areas offer a payment of up to £5 for every patient registered at the practice if it can cut its referrals by 10% on the previous year. CCGs have claimed that these schemes are intended to improve the quality of referrals and ensure patients are seen at the best service for their needs rather than trying to reduce numbers overall. But GP leaders said it is insulting to suggest doctors are sending patients to hospital arbitrarily and raise significant conflicts of interest. Cash incentives based on how many referrals GPs make have no place in the NHS and frankly it is insulting to suggest otherwise, said Professor Helen Stokes Lampard, chair of the Royal College of GPs. Of course it's important to take measures to ensure that GP referrals are appropriate and high quality, but payments to reduce referrals would fly in the face of this and erode the trust our patients have in us to do what's best for them and their health. The NHS has been squeezed for increasingly drastic efficiency savings in the past eight years. A major response to this has been to move specialists to treatment which would once have only been possible in hospitals such as diabetes management to GP practices and community-run services wherever possible. This frees up hospital capacity and is also cheaper because GPs are not paid solely for each procedure they perform. They receive a payment for each patient registered with them instead. NHS England also said last year that funding will be available for CCGs to start peer review schemes where GPs check their colleagues are referring appropriately, but it is not clear what it thinks about direct payments linked to cutting referrals. The Cash for Cuts investigation by GP publication Pulse asked all 207 CCGs in England about their processes for cutting referrals. Of the 180 who responded, 24% had some kind of incentive scheme aimed at lowering the numbers of referrals. This could include payments for getting GPs to peer review each other's referrals or other strategies not aimed at directly cutting numbers. NHS Coastal West Sussex CCG told Pulse it is offering its practices which work in networks covering 30,000 patients, 50% of any savings they can make on the previous year's elective, in other words planned, spending. The CCG said GPs should refer in their best clinical judgment and that the funds they make should be used for schemes which will improve access to GP services or help it hire more staff. While West Leicestershire CCG offered a 30% cut on the savings from a reduction in the bill for first outpatient referrals. Similar schemes are in effect or being developed in Wolverhampton, the Vale of York and Enfield, which is proposing to share savings with the whole area. Dr Peter Swinyard, chair of the Family Doctor Association, 
said the profit share schemes were bizarre, adding from a patient perspective it means GPs are paid to not look after them. It's a serious dereliction of duty influenced by CCGs trying to balance their books. Meanwhile, NHS Barnsley CCG has identified a £1.4 million funding pot to pay its practices if they achieve a reduction in referrals to specialties including cardiology, pancreatic surgery and trauma and orthopaedics. The CCG said the 10% target was ambitious but achievable. It told Pulse ensuring treatment is based on the best clinical evidence and improving historical variation in access is essential for us locally. Financially, it is an effective use of local resources which will improve patient experience and outcomes and increase investment in primary care in line with the five-year forward view commitments. But Dr Dean Eggett, who is the British Medical Association's GP representative for Barnsley, Doncaster, Rotherham and Sheffield, disagreed. The scheme is unsafe and needs to be reviewed urgently, he said. The BMA's GP committee said that it had raised concerns nationally where CCGs have set an arbitrary target for reducing referrals. The health service is currently struggling through the worst winter crisis in its history and key waiting time targets have not been hit since 2015. Before Christmas, Jeremy Hunt, the health secretary, announced he wanted hospitals to find another £300 million in savings on items like surgical gloves and bandages and a long-awaited pay rise for nurses is contingent on staff boosting productivity. The Department of Health and Social Care spokesperson said patients must never have their access to necessary care restricted. We would expect local clinical commissioning groups in NHS England to intervene immediately if this were the case. NHS England was asked by the Independent whether it would be reviewing cases where GPs stand to profit financially for not referring patients, but it had not responded at time of publication. This is all about running down the NHS and thereby running down the public's confidence in the NHS in a bit to privatise it. There's a great quote by Noam Chomsky, you said, that's the standard technique of privatisation. Defund, make sure things don't work, people get angry, you hand it over to private capital. That's the idea, they want to privatise it, not only because of money, although that's one level of it, but it's all about control. Anyone who challenges authority and exposes authority gets no access to healthcare. That's the idea, because once you privatise it, you can dictate it and regulate it from a central point. change of subject again now entirely story about driverless cars now this is in the independent california to allow driverless cars without backup operators at the wheel driverless cars plying california's roads are about to get a little more driverless under new regulation passed by the state's department of motor vehicles dmv self-driving cars will be permitted to use public roads without carrying a human who can take over if things go awry the regulations still require people to be supervising the cars remotely the news represents a major step for the burgeoning autonomous car industry and eases the path for California to continue playing a prominent role. Arizona has already cleared the way for cars without human operators, issuing a permit this year for Waymo, a unit of Alphabet Inc. to operate a commercial ride-hailing service using a fleet of driverless cars. This is a major step forward for autonomous technology in California. California DMV Director Gene Shiamoto said in a statement, Prominent companies, including technology giants like Google and Uber, and older car manufacturers like Ford and Honda, are all vying for a slice of what they believe will be a lucrative and transformative business. Fifty companies are currently permitted to test autonomous cars with drivers in California. According to the state's DMV, companies will be able to apply for permits to test cars without drivers in April. Self-driving vehicles have already logged millions of 
miles of test drives on public roads in an effort to perfect the technology. Pilot projects have deployed the cars to cruise the streets of multiple American cities. Reports filed with California showing the rate of driverless car disengagement, in other words, when a human riding along takes over, show operators for heavyweights like Waymo and GM's crews switching from autonomous mode less frequently. This whole thing about driverless cars, driverless cars are about control. Again, just as with privatization, where you can dictate from a central point who has access to driverless cars will take you nowhere. The onboard computer is not programmed to take you. And if you challenge or expose authority or the establishment, don't be surprised if the car won't go well anywhere. The last story today, another one about Brexit. Always in the news, Brexit, as Britain has still not yet left the European Union. This is a story about Scotland and the European Union. Nicola Sturgeon threatens to trigger a constitutional crisis over Brexit by refusing again to sign off flagship laws on quitting the EU. Nicola Sturgeon took a step closer to triggering a major constitutional crisis today, warning it was very likely the Scottish government would refuse to agree flagship Brexit laws. The First Minister said Westminster's current offer on devolution after Brexit was still not good enough. The Scottish Parliament must normally pass a legislative consent motion for the EU withdrawal bill to become law, and Miss Sturgeon has repeatedly warned she will not move the motion without new safeguards. Ministers in Westminster can technically press ahead with the laws which copy EU rules into British law ahead of exit day without Scottish permission. Copying EU rules into British law, even though 74 million people voted to be free of EU law. But doing so would be unprecedented since devolution and would trigger a major row between London and Edinburgh. Miss Sturgeon has separately launched her own set of laws in Scotland that would mirror the Westminster legislation with extra safeguards for devolution. The First Minister has done so despite the Scottish Parliament's presiding officer, the equivalent of Common Speaker John Burkow, saying it is outside Holyrood's powers. Miss Sturgeon asked the support of Scotland's top law officer. Cabinet Minister David Liddington on Monday said the UK government had committed to the devolved administrations. The vast majority of powers returning from Brussels will start off in Edinburgh, Cardiff and Belfast rather than Whitehall. Downing Street today said it had made a considerable offer to the Scottish Government and would continue to work on finding an agreement. But Miss Sturgeon said Holyrood is simply trying to protect the powers that the Scottish Parliament already has over areas such as agriculture, fishing, environmental policy, food standards, justice and health. She told BBC Radio 4, after Brexit, in terms of the devolution settlement, those powers should return to the Scottish Parliament and it should be up to us how we exercise. What the withdrawal bill seeks to do is restrict and constrain the ability of the Scottish Parliament or the Welsh Assembly to legislate in these devolved areas. Westminster effectively wants to be able to impose uniformity in these areas and that's not acceptable in terms of the broad sweep and fundamentals of the devolution settlement. Speaking later at the Association of British Insurers Conference, Miss Sturgeon insisted we've been trying to avoid getting into the position where we can't recommend consent to the withdrawal bill, which the devolved administrations have got to do. We've put down amendments, we've been talking for months to the UK government to try to get a compromise, we even drafted what that compromise looks like and they failed to really do what needs to be done to get an agreement. Miss Sturgeon welcomed Jeremy Corbyn's announcement on Monday that Labour would seek to form a new and comprehensive UK-EU customs union to ensure tariff-free trade after Brexit as movement and said she hopes Labour is on a journey towards embracing a single market customs union outcome. She said there was a chance of seeing a majority in the House of Commons that would keep the UK in the single market and the customs union. You see, there's all these efforts to keep Britain in the European Union as much as possible so that if we leave, then we leave in all but name. The article goes on. 
However, she said there was equally a very real wish that the UK could crash out of the EU without a deal. Well, that would be the best thing. This is wee Jimmy Cracky, sorry, Nicola Sturgeon, who wants an independent Scotland within the EU. There are no independent countries within the EU. That's the plan. The agenda is for a world government dictating to different areas of the world through the unions. So, in this case, the world government would dictate to Europe through the European Union. And governments then, when you look at the amount of law already dictated to Britain from the European Union, the idea is that it's 100%. And EU law would be world government law. And governments then would be nothing more than organisations to administer their particular part of the world's union's law. Because they want unions for different parts of the world. They've already got the European Union. They've already got the African Union. They want unions for different parts of the world. And governments then would just be there to administer that law into law in their country. And you want to break countries up into regions to make them more manageable. As I've said before, if you go into an image search engine and type in Agenda 21 map of America, given the size of America, you look at how much of America they plan for people to actually use. You want to make vast tracts of land unusable because they want to herd people into what they call human settlement zones, also known as smart cities. And this plays into the transhumanism agenda with what the CIA called the Internet of Things, where home appliances and energy is connected to the Internet through what they call the Internet of Things. And there's also what's become known as the Internet of Everything. And the addition between the Internet of Things and the Internet of Everything is the human mind is connected to the smart grid or the cloud, which is a wireless network of information fields from smart and other technology and that which controls the cloud will control the internet and the internet will control everything and when Nicola Sturgeon says what the withdrawal bill seeks to do is to restrict and constrain the ability of the Scottish Parliament or the Welsh Assembly to legislate in these devolved areas the idea is that the European Union dictates to every area it takes everything the EU when Nicola Sturgeon says Westminster effectively wants to be able to impose uniformity in these areas, and that's not acceptable in terms of the broad sweep and fundamentals of the devolution settlement, the world government through the EU wants total uniformity in every area. This is the bigger picture that we, Jimmy Crackett, sorry, Nicola Sturgeon, either is completely clueless of or she knows what she's doing. Either way, the end result is the same, or it is planned to be the same anyway. But only if you can see the bigger picture will you realise that. And that's where the tagline of pay-per-view comes in, context and connections. And on that note, that's it for today. I look forward to doing it again next week, uh, continuing to present the news from a very different perspective and give the context and connections necessary to see the wider picture. So I hope you've enjoyed it and talk to you next week. Bye.